Today we began a brand new series of messages dealing with the family, familyhood. And I don't know if you look at these portraits on stage, which one is you or which one is your uncle or aunt, or maybe it's your child, I don't know. Um, but all of us have family, some form or some matter, that we've come from a family. And the point of this series of messages is, is for us to live the way Christ intended us to live. So as we begin this series, that's where it's going to begin. What is your responsibility as a family member? What is your role? How should you live? Who are you? Before we figure out how to, we always want to fix everyone else, let's take a look at us and find out who, who it is that God's created. How did God create us? How are we supposed to live out in this family? It doesn't matter where, what family you come from. It doesn't matter if it's a broken family. It doesn't matter if you've, if you've been adopted into a family. It doesn't matter if it's a two-parent family or a single-parent family. We all have responsibility, and God has grafted us into this family. Let me just say this, too. God put you in the family that he wanted you to be in from the foundation of the world. So a perfect God decided this would be the family that you would be born into. Knowing that, we have responsibility then, now that we know Christ, to live the way that he intended us to live. It doesn't give us a reason not to live up to our redeemed potential. And so today we're going to see a picture of brothers and a man, an older brother and a younger brother, given the same opportunity but responding differently. And we're going to see some dysfunctionality. And we're going to see how you can overcome obstacles in the family that you were grafted into or born into. Most of us are familiar because of, if you have cable or one time on sitcom that was on TV called Everyone Loves Raymond. It's a pure picture of dysfunctionality. And all of us watch that show of me being one of those and just laugh and say, wow, look at the older brother, younger brother. Look at the controlling mom. Look at the passive father. Look at the, the in-laws, and so you see this picture of dysfunctionality, and we look at it in a humorous way because it is funny watching it, yet there's this responsibility that we have to, to take what we've been given and to live and stand up in the midst of it, unless you've forgotten what it was like with Everyone Loves Raymond, and maybe this is your family. Take a look at this. So you're stuck with Deborah's parents for the whole weekend? Well, we hardly get to see them, so when they come to town, we want to spend as much time as possible with them. (laughs) I've been told that's how I feel. No, 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 there's something about Deborah's mom. She gives me the willies. What about the husband? He's the weird one. He got all that lotion on him. He's all slick and moist like a beaver running through the woods. Ray, could you get that? Come in. Get the door, Ray. All right. Come in. Oh, hello, Raymond. Hey there, uh, Deborah. Happy Turkey's Eve, Raymond. Hey, same to you. Deb! Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. In record time. Yeah. Your mother kept an eagle eye out for smoking. Ah. <laughs> hey, baby. Oh, isn't this nice? Connecticut grandma and grandpa and regular grandma and grandpa. <laughs> Who wants Tootsie Pops? Me, me, me. 
Helping Deborah cook. <laughs> you can imagine. <laughs> I get the rest. Oh, and Robert, how nice that you're here. He had to go. He's, he's, uh, he's passing a stone. Could you get up, Frank? Would you give me yeah, those? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pants, Dad, pants, pants. <laughs> you want him up or down? What kind of party is this? <laughs> you can never complain about my parents again, ever. I mean it. <laughs> Okay, well, what's all that? Oh, my goodness. How long are your relatives staying, dear? Well, we hardly get to see them when they come to town. We want to spend as much time as possible with them. <laughs> we can watch that on and on and on. Truth is, we all have family. And we all have some weird uncles and weird... Maybe you're the weird uncle. I don't know. But we have responsibility, too, to live out the way that God wants us to live. And so today we're going to unpack a family unit, and we're going to look at it, and we're going to see where one person, one brother, took a different responsibility and lived it out differently. And we're going to see another brother who had a chance at the same responsibility but chose to live differently. We're going to see jealousy. We're going to see greed. We're going to see all kinds of envy. And then we're going to see someone that finally rises from the ashes, from this dysfunctionality, and lives the way that Christ intended them to live. Grab your Bibles and turn to the book of 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 18. If you need a Bible, hold your hand up. Our ushers will be glad to put one in your hand. But turn to 1 Samuel chapter 18, and we're going to read 1 Samuel 18, 1 through 13. When you find that, stand with me, and we'll read it out loud together. David had just killed Goliath. And after he killed Goliath, these were the words, this is what happened after that account. Let's read 1 Samuel 18, verses 1 through 13. Ready, read. After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return home to his family. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David along with his tunic, even his sword and his bow and his belt. Whatever mission Saul sent him on, David was so successful that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. This pleased all the troops and Saul's officers as well. When the men were returning home afterwards, David had killed the Philistine. The woman came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul, was singing and dancing with joyful songs and with timbrels and lyres. As they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands. Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. The next day came an evil spirit from God forcibly on Saul. 
He was prophesying his house while David was playing the lyre, as he usually did. Saul had a spear in his hand, and he hurled it, saying to himself, I'll pen David to the wall. But David eluded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David, but had departed from Saul. So he sent David away from him and gave him command over a thousand men. And David led the troops in their campaigns. You may have a seat. Show you a story of two people, two families. We'll see a leader, and we'll see an older brother and a younger brother interacting. We're going to see one who understands who they are and what they've been made to be and how God created them. And we'll see another man who, who thought he knew who he was, yet was jealous of this person that God was bringing great success to. I'll begin by saying this, which is good for all of us that are fam- have families and are a family member. There will always be someone in your family, someone in your life, someone in your business, someone in your world, someone who can do it better than you. And part of the reason that is, maybe they're doing something that they've been called to do, and you're trying to do something that you haven't been called to do. When we live the way we were built to live, it's an incredible sight. In fact, there's joy and freedom in living to the person that God created us to be. I say the you that you've been created to be. But it can cause others to feel threatened if they are envious and they're insecure in who they are by your accomplishments. So as you begin to succeed in your field, there are people who are insecure who don't want you to succeed, but they're not willing to step out, and yet they're jealous and envious. David steps on the scene after killing Goliath. He had just killed him. It's pretty significant. He killed the town bully, and all of us know bullies, that kept everyone hiding in their basements. And now he went from a no-name, literally. David went from this this shepherd boy who had three ribbons from the Elkhart County Fair because he showed his sheep, and now his name is trending on Twitter. In fact, he did it his own way, too, instead of the way that someone else said he should do it in killing Goliath. Think for a moment, if you can, one little detail that often gets overlooked in this account. There was also this special gift that came. Maybe you've seen this, but maybe you haven't seen it to this detail. Whoever would kill Goliath would receive this. Look at chapter 17 and verse 25. Look back at 17 and verse 25. It says, now the Israelites had been saying, do you see how this man, Goliath, keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. The king, Saul, will give him great what? What's the word? Wealth to the man who does what? Kills him. He will also give him his what? Daughter in marriage. And will exempt his family from taxes in Israel. Now, that alone should have like a long line of guys say, I'm next. No taxes for the rest of your life. Anybody in for that? Imagine. Imagine get you're getting the gross check every week. And it wouldn't be gross. It would be awesome. You get that every single week. No taxes. So he promises whomever steps forward and kills the town bully will receive this. Now, by the way, all of David's brothers heard this same cry. Heard this same response from the king. All of David's brothers could have stepped forward. Every single one of them could have gotten tax-free for the rest of their life. Plus, not only that, great wealth. And when a king says he has great wealth, a king has great wealth. 
And there's also this other little part that steps in. It says that whomever kills the town bull, he will also, the king will give him his what? Daughter. I don't know, maybe the brothers took a look, the profile pic on Facebook and said, I'm not in. I don't want this. Maybe David saw, yeah, I'm in. But three things all appeared quickly. Up for the taking, any man could have it. And every single brother from David's family heard this, heard this bully coming out every day and defying the wishes. Saul wanted the town bully killed. So if you look back in in chapter 17, look at verse 28 again. It says this, when Eliab, David's older brother, the Robert of the family, heard him speaking with the men, he burned with anger at him and asked, Why have you come down here, younger brother, little sibling, little Davy? And with whom did you leave? Look what he says. How many sheep? Few. It's like he's saying, listen, all you're taking care of, I mean, you got the red ribbons from the three sheep from the Elkhart County Fair. You can't kill a giant. Not only does he say, take care of the sheep, but he mocks them and says, why did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? I know how what you are. Conceited. And how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. In other words, his brother looks at him. You don't have what it takes. We got what it takes. But all the while his brother is saying, he's not stepping up. He's not willing to. But he looks at his brother, the younger sibling, and says, you're just conceited. You've always been that way. So get away. David had a choice to make as the younger brother. Will I let older brother continue to bully me around? Or will I stand defiant in Christ's name and win this battle. No matter where you're at in this life, when you begin to step out and live to the redeemed or redemptive potential that Christ has created you to live, you will be resisted in that, and often by your own family. Maybe some of you come from a family that never gave you a chance. Maybe you've always been that little sibling and you're 94 years old now. I don't know. Maybe all of your life you've been the only girl and then somehow the, your brothers have said, you can't mouth, you can never do that. You can I don't know. All of us have a, a, a place in the family and if we're not careful, we'll live that place, that role the rest of our lives when God wants us to live for so much more. In this case, older brother looks at younger brother and says, you don't have what it takes. You're conceited. Go back with your three ribbons and take care of your three sheep. We're talking about the town bully here. You can't kill a bully. You can't kill a giant. So David could have acquiesced, played the role as the younger sibling, and just laughed it off and been the class clown and lived the class clown the rest of his life. Yet he didn't. He took this criticism from his older brother. He wrapped it up and he used it as fuel to his fire of killing this giant. Let me just say this about criticism, especially when it comes from your own siblings and your own family. Maybe it comes from your dad who says, you don't have what it takes. Maybe it comes from a mom who's fearful of you doing anything. And they say, no, don't go there. You'll shoot your eye out, Johnny. Don't do it. Criticism comes in all kinds of forms. Sometimes it comes where it's, it's blatant. Sometimes it's secondary. You don't, don't do that. You'll, you'll get hurt. Any external criticism can only damage you as far as you allow your internal insecurities to do so. Listen to that. That's a powerful statement of truth. Any external criticism can only damage you as far as you allow your internal insecurities to do so. 
See, no matter how horrible it might sound on the outside, if you know who you are on the inside, there is no stopping you if God has called you to it. And so we as followers of God, no matter if you come from a broken family, no matter if you come from a single parent family, no matter if you come from a brother that's been pushing you down and squashing you, maybe you don't even know who your family is. Let me tell you something. If you are in Christ, Christ is in you and you are unstoppable in Christ. That's what that means. So for Samuel... Prior to going to killing him, Saul looks at the younger, he looks at the little sibling. Okay, if you're going to try, the only way you can win, look at 1 Samuel chapter 17. Look at verses 37. Saul tries to help out little Davy. He says this, the Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of the Philistine. Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you then. So Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him. We know, we've read it, a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on the sword over the tunic, tried walking around because he could not use him. And David basically says, I can't go. And it's, it's, your, it's your two-year-old or three-year-old son grabbing your size 11 or 12 boots and walking around the house. Have you ever seen this? It's like, they don't fit. And there's no way they could ever run in them. It's your two or three-year-old son grabbing your clothes, your jacket, your jeans, and wearing them. And, and Saul thinks that somehow it's the outside that's going to protect David. He says, I don't need that. I've killed lions. I've been in a pit on a snowy day and killed lions. It's not the clothes. It's Christ in me that makes me powerful. But Saul saw it in a different way. When we know who we are in here, it changes who we are out here. And so David had a choice to make. Go and fight Saul or Goliath in his way. And so he does. He grabs, you know, you know the story. He grabs a sling and he grabs five smooth stones. And he goes as the baby brother to take on the town bully. Now imagine that for a second. You know, it's hard for us. It's, it's, it's like us today. The president of the United States, our, our, our general commander-in-chief, And then there's this general on the field. We get sent to the front lines, and we go to the front lines, and we're battling against our enemy. We're in the desert somewhere, and they're all lined up with all kinds of of armory. You get the picture, AKs. They're standing there, ARs, and they're standing there. We got 50 caliber weapons, and in walks you, and you got a slingshot and five stones, and let's go. I mean, what are you thinking when you see that? What are you doing here? But if you know who you are in Christ, then you go bravely into the battle. He didn't let the criticism from his older brother keep him and stop him from doing what God had tended him doing from the beginning. You see, let's back up a second. The only way we can ever live to who we were made to be is for us to know who our God is. Turn to Romans chapter 8. I want to show you Romans chapter 8. Turn to Romans chapter 8. In fact, I would encourage you to read Romans chapter 8 once a month, all year long. Read it 12 times. You're feeling down, you're feeling defeated. Read Romans chapter 8. It's like it is the pinnacle of who we are in Christ. But turn to Romans chapter 8. Look at verse 31. Just remind you today on Sunday morning, maybe you didn't have your coffee yet, and you didn't have your monster, whatever you drank to make you feel better. But I'm going to make you feel better by knowing who you are. 
Look what Paul says about who we are. Romans chapter 8, verse 31 says, What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can what? Be against us. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us how many things? All things. Who will bring any what against those who call themselves chosen? Any charge? No one. It is God who justifies. Then he says, who then is the one who condemns? What's the answer? No one. Who is it? No. Come on, help me. Who is it? No one. It says, no one can bring a charge against you. No one can condemn you. No one, no one, not even your big brother. Look what it says next as he moves on. He says, Christ Jesus who died. More than that, who was raised to life is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword as it is written? For your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered sheep to be slaughtered. And then Paul says in this powerful passage, no, in all these things, we are more than our theme for the year, conquerors to him who loved us. For I am convinced... And we need to be convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor the present, nor the future, or any powers, neither height, nor death, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. Here's what that means. We have a God that we call Abba, Father. Now, often we look at that word Abba and we think, you know, we, we, we feel this, this, this like daddy, like he's, he's, he's my daddy. And we feel this warm, like this teddy bear kind of dad that, that, we, that we cry out to. Sure, that, that, that's partially. But the word Abba takes on a greater meaning in scripture. It means this. Here's what Abba means. It means my dad can beat up your dad. That's what it means. I mean, look at Romans chapter eight. Romans said, who could stand against my dad? My dad is bigger than your dad. Who could ever separate me from my dad? No one. It means you keep bringing it, and he's going to keep retreating it. He's going to keep pushing away. No one can beat up my dad, and if you got that dad, you're winning. That's what Abba Father means. Now, when you cry out to Abba Father, who can stand? He's looking, hey, you're not going to stand against my kids. It's not going to happen. So every day when you wake up, you got to remind yourself of this, that No one can condemn you. No one can separate you from God. And your dad can beat up any dad. You often hear those conversations as kids, and somewhere along the path, we don't believe that anymore. Like I can't even remember as a young kid, five, six, seven, eight years old, we'd go to school in elementary school, and we'd start talking about dads. (laughs) Let me tell you about my dad. And and all of a sudden, we dress him. My dad's a policeman. He wasn't. My dad. Why do we say that? Because my dad can beat up your dad. The truth of the matter is, somewhere along this journey, we do the same thing with God. We get saved, we believe he's strong and mighty, and he, he loves us. And yet, somewhere along the line, we start believing these voices. We start believing the accusations of the enemy, all the condemnation that wants to come, and we forget that we have this God that regularly intercedes for us when the enemy comes and tries to accuse us and he says, no one can condemn my kids, no one. That's our God that we serve. David knew this. So he's ready to battle. Look what Goliath Look in chapter 17, verse 41 to 42. Meanwhile, the Philistines with the shield bearer 
in front of him kept coming closer to David, Goliath. He looked David over and saw that he was more than than a boy, was, was, was little more than a boy. Like, he, you know, he, had, he just started shaving. That's what it means, Jim Brown paraphrase. Glowing with health and handsome. And he despised, I also find this very interesting. Like, did he like record that? Did he walk over and say, boy, he's a good looking dude. Like, uh, he could be on Jerusalem's GQ magazine. I mean, do you take time to actually look at him? Like, he, he wasn't threatened at all by, by, by Davy. And then it says this in chapter 17. He looked him over in verse 43. He said to David, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? Like, you're the younger child. Like, where's your big brothers? Send them out. Verse 44. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals of the air. He looked him over, and he wasn't threatened by him at all. Not one bit. You see, David didn't assume the little boy, the younger brother syndrome. The reality is this, is that if your family is dysfunctional and you assume a role that's dysfunctional, you also play a role. You can look at these later, but we assume roles in dysfunctional families. We assume the role of the hero, of the scapegoat, of the mascot, and the lost child. The hero is usually the oldest child. The scapegoat is usually the second child. The mascot is usually one of the younger children. The lost child is often the middle child. And basically what happens is we, 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 we become what psychologists said we should be instead of being who Christ says we are. And so you're either a hero, a scapegoat, a mascot, or a lost child. So Goliath looks at David and says, come here, little boy. I'll eat you for lunch. He didn't say that, but he was thinking that, I'm sure. Then it says this in chapter 17. Look at chapter 17 and verse 55. As Saul watched David going out to meet the Philistine, Goliath, he said to Abner, commander of the army, Abner, whose son is that young man? Abner replied, as surely as you live, your majesty, I don't know. The king said, find out whose son this young man is. As soon as David returned from killing the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul. With David still holding the Philistine head. You know, it's just how my mind thinks. I'm sorry, I'm a man, I'm a dude. Like, did he carry the head by the hair? Like, <laughs> I'm sorry, did, did, he, did he comb his hair over and say, here he is? Sidebar. I know that's sidebar information, but that's how I think. I mean, it's a, he, he, I picture this, this young, can you imagine his older brother's like, <laughs> he just killed Goliath. Can you believe God allowed that to happen? You think he's conceited, was conceited. Imagine now. No, David went in the power and authority of his God. And it says this, you read on, it says, Whose son are you, young man, Saul asked. David said, I am the son of your servant, Jesse. Of Bethlehem, the love that he knew who he was when his older brother Eliab didn't step forward, nor did his other brother step forward. The only brother that stepped forward was the one who shouldn't have stepped forward, the younger brother. He, if he would have assumed a role in a dysfunctional family, he would have retreated. By the way, David won someone else's battle. Saul should have been the commander in chief that went out and fought. Goliath. I wonder how many people are taking our wins because we don't know who we are. 
So David has the audience. He has people following. And now he knows who he is. And when your identity is found in Jesus, you are not threatened by someone who can do it better than you. Look what happens to Saul now in chapter 18. It says in chapter 18 and verse 5, it says, Whatever mission Saul sent David on, he was so successful that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. This pleased all the troops and the officers as well. When the men were returning home afterwards, David had killed the Philistine. The women came out from the towns of Israel to meet King Saul. With singing and dancing and joyful songs, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. And Saul became very angry. And the next day basically sends him on his way away from God. He was afraid of David. See, David knew who he was. Let me just back up. We got, we, we, we got to know who we are. I just read in Romans chapter 8 who we are. Yes, sometimes we forget who we are. Let me show you again. Look at Romans chapter 8, back up to verse 17. Let's just be reminded today of who we are. No matter what family you've come from, no matter if you've been adopted, no matter if you don't know your parents, no matter if you're a single parent, no matter if you have a, a traditional parent family, no matter if you're younger, older, middle child, Romans chapter 8 is a great reminder of us to us. Romans chapter 8 and verse 17 says this. Now, if we are children, then we are what? Heirs. Heirs of whom? God, and co-heirs with who? Okay, back up, back up. Listen, you gotta help me out here. You gotta help me out here. Because if you don't get this, then just go home. Because if you don't get this, you're gonna live your life way below your redemptive potential. Look again at chapter eight and verse 17. Now, if we are God's children, then we are heirs. Heirs of whom? God, and co-heirs with who? If indeed we are, we share in his what? Sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. So not only are we heirs of God, we're co-heirs with Christ. We don't like that little part. We get to, we get to sh- suffer, share in his sufferings, and share in his glory. We just want the glory part. Think about this for a second. We're co-heirs with Christ. We're heirs with God. If you really woke up every morning and thought, wow, I'm a child of the living God. Like, my inheritance comes from God. My inheritance comes from Jesus Christ. Let, let, let me try to flesh it out for you. Imagine Bill Gates dying or getting ready to die. And he knows he's getting ready to die. And imagine as he rewrites his will, he decides to bypass his kids and his wife. And all of a sudden, he puts your name as the heir the inher- to his inheritance. Now imagine how that would reshape how you think. So he's getting ready. He, he's changing his will. Billionaire Bill Gates. I mean, he basically could buy America. He could, you could have anything. You could have anything in the world. Like he, he, he now is your earthly father because he's given you this inheritance. He passes over his kids, passes over his wife, and he says, here, this is yours. Now imagine he passes away and his lawyer gives you a call. And you're like, what just happened? Yeah, yeah, you got all of Bill Gates' money. What just happened? You, you got everything that he owns. What just happened? So you hop in your 1994 Taurus and you start driving to his house. <laughs> and you're driving along. And this is how we think. We're driving along and we're trying to get to daddy's house because we know this inheritance is coming and we're driving along. And as we get halfway down the road, we're almost a mile, mile and a half away. The engine starts to knock. <laughs> And it starts to shake. 
and it just quits. You get out and you slam the door shut. You kick the door and you got to get out and walk. It's hot outside and you're so ticked. I gotta walk in this hot sun. I gotta suffer. And car broke down. I can't believe someone needs to come alongside and you say, "Shut up! Don't you know what's coming? You're so focused on a 1994 tours and a hundred degree temperature, and you are the heir of Bill Gates. Just shut up! I don't want to hear it. Listen, <laughs> who are we heirs of? God. Who are we co-heirs with? And we're to share in his what? Sufferings. And when those sufferings come, someone needs to come alongside of you when you're whining and when you're complaining and you're thinking, oh, this is horrible, and just say, shut up! Don't you know what's coming? The God of the universe is your Abba Father, and he has set you up to win big time. This isn't your home Heaven is. That's what God is saying. So here's what you should do. When that suffering comes along, you open your door, you shut it, and you say, you've been good to me, Taurus. You've been good. And you just work your way right down that road. And if hardship comes your way, I don't care. And if suffering comes your way and sickness comes your way and death comes your way, you say, I know what's coming, baby, and I'm ready for it. And the minute you begin to whine, someone needs to say, shut up. Pastor Jim said I could say that to you. See, David knew who he was. Some of you don't. People will ask me or ask people sometimes, Jim, where do you get all that passion from? Here's where it comes. I know who I am in Christ. This isn't it. I can get in my 2006 Jeep Commander if it drops off the cliff and I breathe my last breath. Guess what's coming, Abba Daddy? You see, you live differently when you know that. Quit living in your past. Quit blaming your dad. Quit blaming your mom. Quit blaming that you were the younger child, the middle child, the older child. You didn't have what they had. Quit blaming because your daddy is the God of the universe. Boy, you get that. You live differently. It's time. Listen to me. It's past time. Some of you quit living as victims. It is beyond time. This is not it. We are alien and strangers, Scripture says, and just passing through. But what is to come is glorious. See, David knew that, but his older brother, Robert, didn't. And so all the people like this. I mean, look, at they started singing about him. They sang, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. And Saul got jealous of him. And I want to say, Saul, that battle was yours to win in the first place. You gave that victory away. So on the streets of Jerusalem, they sang, Oh, Davy, he's so fine, he's so fine, he blew my mind. Hey, Davy. <laughs> and Saul didn't like it. You see, envy is the art of counting the other fellow's blessings instead of your own. 
Aren't we good at that? Wow, wish my husband was like that. Wish my wife was like that. I wish my kids behaved like that. I wish my car wasn't a 1994 Taurus. I wish I had that education. I wish I didn't have divorce in my background. I wish I wasn't incarcerated. I wish, I wish, I wish, I wish, I wish, I wish. Listen, that's all stuff on earth. Get your mind off the earth and place it on Jesus Christ. Stop for a second. Consider all the ways it plays out when you're threatened by someone else. You see, we live differently. Some of us are threatened by someone's position, their power, their looks, their grades, their athletic ability, their family heritage. And when we can't be like them, we'll just cut them down. Proverbs 14.30 reminds us that a heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. And there is some rotting of bones taking place when you take your eyes and look at someone else instead of what God has intended for you. You see, envy is clearly the flint that ignites the evil in our hearts, and it apparently signals, I'm available to demons searching for a cheap date. Stop and listen to me, please. If you get nothing else from this message, you don't have to be your brother. You don't have to be your older sister. You don't have to be like dad, and you don't have to be like mom. You don't have to be like your friend or roommate or college friend. You don't have to have a family like they had. You don't need to have a dad or mom like they have. You have everything in Christ, everything. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. You have skills, abilities, personality traits that are uniquely you. You don't need anyone else's gifts, anyone else's abilities. God gave you what he thought was best for you. By the way, God uses people with a willing heart, not a perfect resume. You see, so we look at our past, but I see all these sins, Pastor Jim. It's like, man, I, I committed that sin, and I did that, and I've just been, it's just, it's just a heap. It's just a pile of mess. It's, and so we keep looking back at the messes, and we somehow think that God hasn't forgiven that, and somehow God doesn't love us, and somehow the righteousness of Christ and the blood of Jesus isn't good enough. And so here's how we think. We constantly think like, one of these days I'll have my act cleaned up, and I'll be a little better, and then I'll be able to receive by God. And so we let these sins that God's already chosen not to remember anymore. And Scripture says when God looks at us, he sees us covered with the righteousness of Jesus. And this is what he says. He sees you and me as blameless, holy, But our minds can't conceive that because we live in the present. Yet Christ's work on the cross forgave our sins of our past, our sins of our present, and our sin of our future. So when he looks at us and we can, oh, just give me five more years down the road, God, then you'll love me more. God doesn't love you anymore in past, present, and future in your sins. He loves you as much now as he ever has. You know, when I really got this down was when I had Ann and I had kids, and it was just amazing. And, and like I remember the firstborn and every child. Something comes out of me and my wife, too, this protective instinct. Like when it's your child that has your DNA that you are dad to or mom to. And, and, and when Josh was born, I'll never forget just watching my wife 
just go through that labor and give birth and just, just how she loved Josh. And when he came out, I was just all of a sudden, this, this love that I've never felt before, like, it's different than how I feel for my wife, which is just, just unbelievable. But this child that somehow we made together with God's help. And I'm looking at this boy. That, so the first thing I did, I went out and bought him a pair of Dita high top sneaks that were about this big and put them on his feet. You laugh, I did. Couldn't find him. That's the smallest I could find. But I remember looking at him, just, just, just this love that I felt for my son. It was just like, like don't touch my son. Don't touch him. That you come and touch my son, listen, I'm going to go straight up Smith and Wesson on you. That's what I was thinking. You touch him, gone. Okay, don't quote that, okay? <laughs> but it was just love. And, and so I had this unusual love for my son. And the first year of his life, he was the most selfish, self-centered kid I've ever had in my life. As is every kid, isn't it? First year. All they do is cry, wah, 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 feed me, feed me, feed me. All they do is have blowouts in their diapers, change me, change me, change me. They can bring nothing good to the table, nothing at all. Everywhere you go, look at me, feed me, I'm hungry, feed me. I don't sleep, I need sleep. And all you do, you're just this selfish kid. But let me tell you something. I loved him. I loved him when he was crapping his pants everywhere. (laughs) And he had nothing good to bring to the table except his cute smile. See, that's how God feels about us. We think we got to get all cleaned up. And somehow God will love us more when we get it all together and when we're not so self-absorbed and self-centered and it's all about me. Did you realize, even at your very worst, God doesn't love you more or love you less. He loves you the same. Oh, come on. When you get a hold of that, it changes your life. It changes your life. You can have the crappiest life and God still loves you. You see, we need to stop focusing on our inabilities and instead on God's unlimited abilities. So Saul was angry, jealous. And it says he had an eye for David, a green, envious eye. And his Facebook and tweets weren't very pretty. And he wanted to kill him. Why? Because all he was doing was living to his redeemed potential. Someone needed to take Saul for a little walk around his kingdoms. Hey, Saul, come here a second. I want to take you for a walk. You're jealous of David. Don't you realize what you have? Like, come over here, Saul. You got like 20 car garage with your chariots. Saul, you got servants and maids. You have so much food. Saul, you even have gold lace flip-flops. Who's got that? Saul, don't you know what you have? Someone needed to be a reality check and and, and tell Saul, don't you know who your God is? Someone needed to remind him of who he was and who his God was. Take him on a little walk, pull him away. Said, listen, shut up, Saul, shut up. Don't you realize what's in store for you? 
why are you jealous of little Davy here, who God loves just as much as he loves you, who just decided to live up to his redeemed potential, even though he was the baby of the family and he had a bullying brother who said, you can't do that, who always hit him in the arm and says, you don't have what it takes, who mom and dad were constantly breaking up because all they were doing was fighting. You see, the minute envy sets in, you become insecure and don't live to your redeemed potential. So what's that mean to us today? You know your path. Maybe you're constantly comparing your life and say, boy, I wish. I wish I wasn't adopted. I wish my dad didn't leave me. I wish my parents didn't get divorced. I wish I was as good looking as my brother. I wish I was as smart as my sister. I wish I was that coach of that school. I wish I could run as fast as him. I wish, I wish, I wish, I wish, I wish, I wish, I wish. Instead of saying, thank you, God, for you've created me fearfully and wonderfully. Do you realize in Psalm 139, when David coined those words, that he said, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. And then he said, I know that full well. That was after he committed adultery with Bathsheba. Do you realize at the end of his life, if you go to the book of Acts, it says, David, a man after God's own heart. You see, he knew something. That God loved him even when he was a self-centered, absorbed person as much as when he was killing Goliath. Oh, Lord, help us today. Change our lenses, God. Just change our lenses. Help us to quit believing the lies of our siblings and our friends and our co-workers. Help us to quit living the victim's life. Bring someone into our life that says, you know what, not only do we share in the glory of God, but we share in the sufferings. Life can be hard, so be it. Shut up. Because what is coming is so much better than this. God, I pray that your people would understand that you make beautiful things. Beautiful things. And when we know that, we live differently. So God, that's my prayer. Change our lenses. Help us to live to our redeemed potential with the gifts, skills, abilities that you've given us, not someone else. And help us to run to the front of the enemy line with five stones and a slingshot and say, my daddy can beat up your daddy. Amen.